I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time we step back to 1984 for a story about a dungeon master, his friends, and a showdown with a bully. Alright, let's get to work. Purvis. If God were a dungeon master, he rolled a critical failure when creating me. No strength, dexterity, constitution, and definitely no charisma. I did alright on my wisdom roll, and I'm intelligent enough to be a feared magic user, but really, I'm the character you roll again when no one is looking. Thanks to Hot Pockets, Red Baron Pizzas, and Mountain Dew, I have more hit points than most 14-year-olds. But what good is that when my size modifier makes me so damn easy to hit? My name is Arnold Purvis, and I wish I'd never been born. Right there, my name. I take two steps into my homeroom at school and I hear the nickname, Arnie the Perv. Only it's said in a terrible Austrian accent meant to mimic Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ani the perv. Even my so-called friends do it now. It's either the Ani thing or my last name stretched out to a sing-song Purvis. I suppose the name-calling is better than the all-out beatings. The only reprieve to my shitty life is Dungeons and Dragons. God may not be a dungeon master, but I sure the fuck am. I come up with shit that makes Tomb of Horrors look like your little sister playing Candyland. But I'm not out to kill characters left and right. I want to see my friends pour everything they wish they were in life into their fighters, paladins, and magic users, and then beat them down so ruthlessly that they want to cry like babies and give up. But they stick around knowing that I'll break the rules now and then and sometimes be like, those kobolds were defending a type A treasure. Those imagined riches in the game make up for shitty allowances and everything else taken from us at bus stops and lunch lines and on our walks home from school. In the game, we have some semblance of control over life. So yeah, on Friday and Saturday nights, I'm God. And I'll lay waste to all of Greyhawk if that's what it takes to release some of the pain inflicted on me during the week. After weeks of walking, you finally reach the massive thunderhead climbing high into the sky, higher than anything you've ever seen before. The roiling mist swirls before you. What do you do? Dave Merritt, aka Eldre Mormyar, says, I cast Dispel Magic. It does nothing, I say. Oh, come on! It's not like there's a saving throw in the spell. You're cheating again. I read him the rules. A Dispel Magic spell will not affect a specially enhanced magic item, such as a scroll, magic ring, wand, rod, staff, miscellaneous magic item, magic weapon, magic shield, or magic armor. It's a fucking cloud, though. It doesn't matter, your spell doesn't work. So it's a magic cloud? I didn't say that. You're an asshole. I roll a 20-sided die behind my Dungeon Master's screen. It comes up as a 1. 
As I lift the screen, I roll the die to the other side with my free hand, revealing a 20. Critical hit! A lightning bolt comes out of the cloud and hits you in the dick. You die. I get a saving throw. Critical success, I don't think so. Merritt looks to the rest of the party and Torres says, Come on, Purvis, give him a chance. Fine, roll. Merritt rolls a 20-sided die. A 19. He smiles at me. I wreck his world when I say, The only thing that could have saved your character is a critical success. A 19 doesn't cut it. Sorry, dude. You jolt and turn to ash from the lightning strike, feeling the full wrath of Mount Skelbruder in your crotch. Merritt pushes back from the table. Fuck this shit, I'm getting a Pepsi. Donald Sanders says, So the cloud is a mountain? And I do my best to pretend I didn't hear him. Donald's older brother Marcus says, That was shitty, Arnold. We game at Marcus and Donald Sanders' house on the weekend because they have the coolest parents. Marcus goes on. He just cast a spell. You could have just said it didn't work. That's what I did. Yeah, but... But what? I told him it didn't work and he spazzed. I read him the fucking rules. Clearly, more is going on than it seems and he storms off in a huff to get a Pepsi and probably try to cop a look at your sister. Donald says it again. So it's a mountain? Torres shakes his head. Just resurrect him or something when he comes back. You're good with stories. Come up with some reason he can still play. We wait for Merritt to return with a Pepsi, and I say, The great god Malinor has heard the prayers of the company. You have been resurrected. He shakes his head, and I say, What do you say? Another head shake, and Merritt recites from memory, Oh, thank you, great god Malinor. I am humbled before you and promise to not waste your gift of life. Again. I take a gulp of Mountain Dew and look at Donald. What do you do? One to three, I step into the cloud. Four to six, and I throw a rock in to see if it hits the side of a mountain. Seven to nine, I just make a fucking decision, Merritt says, and I can't disagree with him. Donald can't take a shit without rolling a 12-sider. He carries one everywhere he goes, and he uses it all the time. The kid worries too much about everything. His parents expect things from him and Marcus, but they aren't demanding people. Shit, I'd love it if my dad paid attention to me like the Sanderses pay attention to their kids. I guess Donald figures if fate makes all the decisions for him in life that he can never have a regret, except maybe one day realizing how fucked up it is to let the roll of a die determine your course in life. By choosing not to decide, he still has made a choice. Phantom fears rule that kid's mind. I think it's a mountain, he says, and I say, the halfling Wilthorn Locke steps into the mist. I'd say this is a good place to call it a night. <laughs> no sooner than I step into homeroom, and I'm hitting the nuts with a tape ball. Jeff Davis stands in the far back corner of the room, pointing at me and laughing with his friends. I want to curl up and drop to the floor it hurts so bad, but I know that's what he wants. As I take a seat beside Torres, I hear Davis say, I'm amazed I was able to hit such a small target. One of his friends adds, Poor Annie de Pev. Torres asks me if I'm okay. Yeah, I say, even though I'm not. Sure, the Ani the Perv thing and other verbal abuse stings a bit, but you reach a point where you've heard it all before. 
It's not like dumb jocks can think of good cutdowns beyond their go-tos. Basic shit like bitch and fag. Fat comments hurt, but the rest bounces off of you after a while. It's the nut shots, the books to the back of the head, and the sucker punches in the hallway that you can't shake off. The physical shit is the real reminder that there's no escape. When we're all accounted for and homeroom is over, our little group chats in hopes Jeff Davis and crew pass us by instead of tormenting us some more. It's our lucky day. And my day gets even better when Davis's girlfriend, Jenny Sorensen, lags behind. He's sorry, she says. I want to tell her he's not, but I nod because I want her to know that I know she's at least sorry for his actions. I see her future in that moment apologizing for Jeff at weddings, at parties, and at their children's sporting events. A future of excuses and apologies all on her because she's decent and knows better, but has still chosen to buy into the hierarchy of it all. She's so much better than that. I want to tell her to get out now, or at the very least, make her understand that Jeff Davis has never once in his entire frigging life been sorry for his actions but I'm staring into her blue eyes just a bit too long, and I become self-conscious and say nothing at all. Jenny touches my shoulder with her hand and smiles. I smirk back, and she rushes off to catch up with her group. Eldenor lies northeast of Greyhawk's Sablewood and Korosk Mountains, out in the icy sea. Nestled in the middle of the Great Island, at the base of Mount Skullbruder, is the grand city of Velmorn. It's entirely my own creation. Greyhawk and its many modules are all well and good, but you reach a point as a dungeon master where you need your own places to set adventures. Story matters most, and I can't make something up and have a rules hound like Merritt say, Nuh-uh, Ironwood is west of Devarnish. Look at the map! So I've made up my own places and stories. I'm going to be a writer like Stephen R. Donaldson or David Eddings, and one day Merritt will tell everyone he knows. I used to play D&D with him. I've actually been in his stories, not just read them like you. The halfling thief, Wilthorn Locke, has stepped into the mist. What do the rest of you do? Torres says, Bodigan the dwarf draws his axe and follows him in. Garland Sundura says a prayer and then draws his sword, Sanders says. May the great god Malinor be with us all. I look at Merritt. What do you do? Eldre detects magic. Nothing. Oh, come on, he says. You can't tell me something's not up around here. You detect nothing. Fine, I detect evil. Your mind is still fatigued from casting the detect magic spell. They're first level spells, dude. It doesn't matter. This is bullshit. It's always bullshit. Sanders' sister, Stephanie, wanders through the dining room, attracting Merritt's attention. I get it, she's good-looking and all, but not like Playboy Playmate good-looking. More like a penthouse pet. The kind of bitch you write letters about that begin with, I never thought it would happen to me. Merritt says, Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Dave. What's bullshit? This game? I just thought it was nerdy. Not the way Purvis does things. When Stephanie has grabbed a wine cooler from the fridge and moved on, and Merritt's attention returns to the game, I say, well, what do you do? Fine, I wait 15 minutes and cast Detect Evil. Alright, you don't sense anything. Why the fuck am I even a magic user if nothing ever works? 
Three hours later, Merritt has exhausted all of his spells, just as the company comes upon an old man standing at the mouth of a cave in the mountain. That's never good, Torres says. I smile and say, you'll find out tomorrow night. Stupid people talk about looking up at the stars. It shows how tiny their thoughts are, unable to realize we actually look down and out across it all as we plummet into darkness. When I walk along at night and look at the stars, I imagine I'm the great god Malinor looking down on all I've created. It's good inspiration for adventures. I'm thinking about the company climbing Mount Skullbruder when I hear a car up ahead. A Z-28 turns onto the street heading the other way. I know who's driving, and I consider running when the car pulls over and Jeff Davis steps out. He doesn't see me, though. He heads up the street away from me, and I follow. I don't need to make a stealth roll. I move in the shadows above the stars, a mighty god pursuing a mere mortal. Davis slows and surveys the street, and then cuts into a side yard between two houses. When I catch up, he's at Jenny Sorensen's window behind the house. She crawls out and down a tree. They kiss and then turn my way. I jog back to the street, but there's no place to hide. I crouch down in a ditch, struggling to catch and control my breath. I pick up a chunk of rock broken free from the edge of the street, just in case Davis sees me and I need to use it on his stupid face. Davis and Jenny pass by so close, totally focused on each other, that they don't see me, even though I could reach out and touch Jenny's leg. They make their way back to Davis's Z-28. The fucking bastard doesn't even open the door for Jenny. In fact, she has to wait for his ass to reach across and unlock her side. Fucking troglodyte doesn't deserve her. They pull away and I finish my walk above the stars. When I get home, my dad is out cold drunk in his chair in front of the TV. I stop and take a look at him to make sure he's still breathing. Remington steals on. I watch for a moment. Damn, I'd fuck the shit out of Stephanie Zimbalist. The old man at the mouth of the cave waves to you all. What do you do? Before anyone has a chance to speak, Merritt says, Fuck you and your first level spells never working. I cast Meteor Swarm. I roll a 20-sider behind the screen. Right as I'm saying a 20, Merritt raises the screen, revealing the three that I actually rolled. You fucking liar! The old man's toast! He's not an old man, I say. He reveals his true form, a silver dragon. That's so fucked up, dude. Fucked up! First, you failed a saving throw and lied about it. Second, him suddenly morphing into a fucking silver dragon. That's bullshit! I read from the monster manual. Much as a golden dragon, these creatures are able to polymorph themselves in order to appear as an animal or human, typically a kindly old man or fair damsel if the latter. That's a load of shit. It's right there in the rules, I say. Merritt's face grows red. Okay, yeah, sure. But you're always screwing us over. So now we're fighting a fucking silver dragon? I never said it's fighting you, but... I roll a 20-sider. I lift my dungeon master's screen, not touching a thing. I point down at it. A natural 20. The silver dragon juts out a claw and hits you in the eye. 
Fuck you, Merritt says. Fuck you, your goddamn silver dragon, and fuck your mom. I come out of my chair, and Merritt is against the wall before I exhale into his face. He knows he fucked up on this one. I'm sorry, he says. Seriously, dude, you know I wouldn't joke about that. I'm sorry. I squeeze his neck and Tortoise tugs at my arm. Arnold! He said he didn't mean it. Look at him. He didn't. Merritt can be a fuckhead, but even he's not going to take a shot at my mom. He didn't do it, Sanders said. And your dad didn't mean it. That night. Fuck! A cop at the door telling me my parents had been in a wreck. Drunk dad at the wheel. Mom dead on the highway. Dude, Merritt says, I'm just pissed because you're always talking about how the story matters more than anything, but you're always killing us. It's kind of fucked up. It's part of the goddamn story. What story? The one where we all die over and over for your gratification and come back only because we beg you to go on? I pull Merritt away from the wall and then slam him back into it. He looks deeply into my eyes. Fuck this shit, he says. I try apologizing and you're still an asshole. You know what? Nobody fucking likes you. The only reason Torres and Marcus hang out with you is you just happened to sit next to him in first grade. But nobody since then has ever become your friend. Because you're an asshole. I'll fucking kill you. Go ahead, he says. That's fucked up, but go for it, bitch. Because you know what? The saddest thing? There's something special up in that fucking thick head of yours. He knocks on the side of my skull and I slap his hand away. Touch me again and I'll fucking kill you. Yeah, yeah, he says as he walks away. Then he turns back at me and says, You really could be something special, dude, if you weren't such a fucking dick. What did you call me? A dick. Because you are. A big fucking piece of shit dick named Arnold fucking Purvis. I rush him, but stop short just of hitting him and putting him through the wall. I dare you, he says. Come on, hit me, you fat fuck. Don't call me fat. Okay. He shoves me. Come on then, fag. Hit me. I fucking dare you. It's not that I'm afraid to fight. I just know the moment that I hit somebody that it'll all come out and I'll spend the rest of my life in prison getting ass fucked. And you never know what demons live in other people just waiting to be released. The day I hit another person with purpose is the day that somebody dies. But still, I can't take shit from some spaz-like merit. Before he knows what hits him, I have him wrapped up in a bear hug and pinned to the floor. Get the fuck off me, Jabba! He kicks his feet and hits the leg of a table, sending drinks spilling and dice tumbling. I feel Torres and Sanders tugging at me, but I have a deathlock on Merritt. Arnold! Arnold! Take it easy! It's Mr. Sanders, and he's rubbing my back instead of pulling at me. What's going on, guys? I stand up and see the rest of the Sanders family looking at me. As I storm out and run through the front room, before the door slams shut behind me, I hear Mrs. Sanders say to Stephanie, Is that one of my wine coolers? Everything Merritt said is true. Torres and Sanders wouldn't be friends with me had we not met in first grade. And I know I take my failings in life out on others in the game. I lost it when I shouldn't have. What hurt the most was Merritt giving me credit for coming up with good stuff when I'm not being an ass. I totally get in my own way. This time, the repercussions of that last for weeks. Homeroom becomes even more awkward, me sitting totally alone. 
I wait for Davis to mess with me, but even he senses something so wrong that to come at me just wouldn't be right. In the second week of only having Torres and Sanders saying hi as we pass each other in the halls, I overhear them talking during lunch. Torres tried running a game without me, and Merritt actually got to use his magic powers. The adventure sounded lame, but they had fun, and that stings more than anything. By the third week, I'm a shadow. Torres still says hi to me and tries talking, but Sanders is reduced to nodding, as though we kinda knew each other years ago and he's not sure he remembers me. My dad has a gun, and I think about using it. Maybe on Davis and his buds, maybe on myself. At home, I open ready-made dinners with knives, and I think about how easy it would be to pull the edge across my wrists, or scream out loud as I stab myself repeatedly in my big fat stomach, or slice open my neck. Who the fuck would care? One day I step out of the lunch line and Davis is standing there. He looks at my tray, a chocolate donut, a piece of chocolate cake, and half a pint of chocolate milk. He takes the tray from my hands and puts it on the nearest table. He looks at me and says, You a cockroach? as he takes me to the ground. I can see how he won state in wrestling. I'm on my back and he stands up. Yeah, you're a fucking cockroach, he says. Kick your legs, roach boy. And I do, because I know if I don't, anything that follows will be even worse. Davis opens my chocolate milk and pours it on my stomach. Where are the fucking teachers, I think? And then Merritt's there, crossing every established lunchroom rule as he puts Davis up against the wall. He's crazy enough to make Davis and his crew think twice about doing anything to him. Leave him the fuck alone, Davis. I look up and nobody makes a move. Merritt turns his back to Davis and I can see him bracing for a cheap shot. Something in his eyes says if Davis hits him from behind, Davis is dead. Merritt extends his hand to me and helps me up. When I'm on my feet and Merritt looks at Davis, he and his friends give us room. Merritt takes me to the gymnastics locker room and tells me to take a shower. He hands me a towel and a change of clothes, a pair of sweats and a t-shirt that are way too tight on me, and then he walks me home. At my front door, he says, I'd love to game this Friday if you're up for it. We pick up Friday where we left off. The Silver Dragon thrusts an arm out at Eldre Mormyar and hits him in the eye with one of its long claws. God damn you, Merritt says. I look at him and say, trust me. I take him to the front room and say, the great elven magic user Eldre Mormyar falls away to another plane, realizing he now walks among those in the faraway lands. Millennia unfold before you. Ancestors of legend greet you with open arms. Time will never touch you here in this enchanted place. Am I dead, Merritt says? I pray to the great god Melanor. An ancestor so ancient even you cannot fathom their age says, This is the domain of Manwe Luvatar. What is it you seek? I want to see the peak of Mount Skullbruder and to live another lifetime. That is two wishes. Okay, I want to see the top of Mount Skullbruder with my friends. More than anything. We return to the dining room and I say, In the midst of the dark clouds, Eldre Marmior rises and chants, Ilnar Myrna Fol. What happens, Donald says. 
The clouds around you become infused with amber light. Roll a 20-sider, Bodigan. Torres rolls a two, but I don't give a shit. At the back of your throat, you taste gold. Perhaps the legends about the peak of Mount Skullbruder are true. I walk home thinking about why Merritt and I have always been at odds, and the best I can come up with is this. We've both always vied for the attention of Torres and Sanders. He's jealous because the three of us have been friends since first grade, and I'm jealous because I'm sure they like him better than me. But he's not a bad guy, and not just because he thinks I'm going to grow up and be a writer. Even the night of our fight, he said a nice thing before I took him down. We both just need to mellow out. And I need to put more into the campaign and stop being such a dick. Especially with Christmas break coming up and playing every day. It's a lot of work putting it all together. Maybe it's time to give the company a bit more say in things, and force me to improvise and prove that I have it in me to keep a great story going, no matter what changes come my way. Maybe all the recent shit needed to happen in order to get to this point. I stop and look at Orion in the sky. There's something about the stars on a cold night that just seems to matter more. With the haze of summer long gone, everything is more clear. And I finally get why people say they look up at the stars. There's something comforting in knowing there are billions and billions of lights shining down on us all. We can imprint on them whatever we want, gods, energy, or a love of science and curiosity. Wondering if somewhere out there some other life form understands the power of looking up, and from those moments, making up stories. When I get home, my dad's not in his chair in front of the TV. I hear him in the kitchen, so I sneak around to the dining room. I fail my stealth roll and bump into a table in the dark. Who's there, he says. I freeze. I'll fucking shoot you. It's me. I step into the kitchen. My dad holds a can of old style in his left hand. He looks up at the clock above the sink, 10.17. He balls his right hand into a fist. I thought I told you to be home by 10 o'clock. I make it to homeroom early, and I sit in the back corner so the black eye my father gave me Saturday night is easier to hide. Torres, Sanders, and Merritt wander in together. They come to the back and sit beside me. Why are you back here, Torres says. I show them my eye. Who? And he trails off. He mouths, your dad? And I say yes. He forces his eyes tightly shut and shakes his head. Sanders asks if I'm okay, and I nod yes again, even though I'm not. It's not so much that it hurts, it's just... Well, a dad shouldn't beat the shit out of his son for no other reason than his kid is 17 minutes late and he's a shitty dad. They all do their best to make me feel good about Saturday night's game, and I can't argue with them. It was a great evening, until I got home. I think about all they are about to see when they break through the cloud bank near the top of Mount Skullbruder, and it makes me happy to know I'm giving the story to them. I can't believe how shitty I've treated these guys and Sanders' little brother. I smile and make eye contact with each one of them, hoping they one day know how much they mean to me. And then Jeff Davis wanders into homeroom, holding Jenny Sorensen's hand. 
He makes his way to his usual far corner, but he spots me on the total opposite side. He points, and he and his boys wander over and sit all around us. Jenny looks even more nervous than Torres. What's up, Tobaguts? Everyone in homeroom waits. I said, what's up, asshole? And I do my best to ignore him. Davis stands up, steps to me, and slaps me in the side of the head. Jenny says, stop it, Jeff, but he doesn't stop. He grabs my face in his hand and wrenches it toward his. He steps back, smiling. I see somebody else did my dirty work for me. What happened, bitch? Some third grader give you a black eye? Stop, Jeff, Jenny says. Or did daddy do it to you? I feel my face go slack, despite doing everything I can to prevent it from happening. That's it, he says. Daddy did it. Daddy gave the fat fuck a fucking black eye. I punch Jeff Davis in the face, sending him to the ground. Instead of stepping in to help him, his friends move back and away, giving me room to pick up my overturned desk and drop it on Davis. I pick it up again and drive the edge of the writing arm into his midsection. I hear him yelp and I hear Jenny shout, Stop it! But I don't. I hit Jeff Davis with the desk several more times, sometimes driving edges and legs into his body, and sometimes swatting him like a fly with the writing surface. He curls up into a ball and I hurl the desk three rows over. Without thinking, I'm on top of him, but not wrapping him up like I did with Merritt the night he called me a fat fuck. For a moment, I think that's one of the only truths in life, that I am a fat fuck, and my rage grows even hotter. I'm straddling Davis. I pummel his face like pistons, despite his best efforts to block my blows. I see blood, and it only makes me hit him harder. I want to taste it. I want to kill the fucker. For all the people he's ever picked on. For all the people he'll ever pick on. A flurry of rights and lefts leaves me winded, but I don't care if my heart fucking explodes and I die on top of this asshole. If nothing else, I will be remembered as the guy who beat the ever-living fuck out of Jeff Davis. The big pussy goes limp, and I get three more blows in before a gang of teachers pull me off of him. I look down at his ruined face, knowing at least one of those final punches broke his nose. He looks worse than I ever looked after my dad lost it on me. I kick at him and miss as I'm pulled away, but when I spit, it lands on his face and splatters like a bug hitting a windshield at a hundred miles an hour. In the office, Dean Greenberg tells me he has no choice but to call my father. Please don't, I say, and he says he needs to come and get you. I should probably call the police. You're right, you should. Call the police, dickhead. Excuse me? You heard me, green dick. I fucked your wife. I'm gonna fuck your daughters. Call the cops. I fucking dare you. He cocks his head to the side like a dog, and I realize that I sold it too hard. He looks at my black eye and grimaces like Torres. He stands up. Let me go chat with Principal Siebert about our options. I poke my head out of his office, and when he's down the hall, I walk out the other way. In the main office, I tell Mrs. Fitzpatrick, Dean Greenberg told me to wait out on the bench for my dad, and she lets me pass without question. I sit on the bench outside the office for a moment, and when I notice her attention return to whatever it is she's typing, I get up and head out the front door. My lungs burn as I run from the building. 
I hide in the bushes along Seymour Avenue, waiting for Torres, Sanders, and Merritt to pass by after school lets out. When they do, I say, Psst, from the bushes. Torres figures it out. Arnold? I step out and they look around. Merritt says, The cops are looking for you, man. No shit? Yeah, no shit. That's when I realize Merritt's carrying a stick. Dude, you are in so much trouble, Sanders says. An ambulance came for Davis. Really? I'm happy to hear that, but not what follows. Yeah, but he's okay. They brought him back to school. He told us he's going to kill you. Fuck that. I ruined that bitch, I say. And I'll ruin him again. None of us believe it. We walk a couple blocks to the top of Grove Street before hearing the revving of Jeff Davis's Z-28 as he flies past us and skids to a stop. As Davis gets out of the car, Merritt hands the stick to me like a squire, but I am no knight. I spin around to face Davis, holding the stick like a two-handed sword. I swing with all my might, but a handful of years playing Dungeons and Dragons hasn't prepared me for actual combat. Davis is already on me, and the physical force of my swing is way out at the end of the stick where he is not. He's a jock. He's fast. He takes the stick from my hands. It spins from the power of my swing, and for a moment I think he's about to drop it, but the spinning only increases its momentum as he comes around and hits me in the side of the head. Somehow I stay on my feet, but I'm in no state to block the second blow to the other side of my head. BAM! BAM! I fall back, hitting the base of my skull on the curb. The world becomes a haze like a confusion spell has been cast upon me, but I'm still with it enough to see Davis's boot come down on my face. It should be an easy thing to dodge, but my body will not do what my mind wants it to. I feel like Merritt trying to roll to hit on nights I skew all modifiers in my favor. I hear crunching deep inside my head with Davis's second blow. I cast a phase door spell on the third stomp, and I'm where I belong. The icy sea gives way to the wooded west coast of Eldenor. I fly above it all following the river Lunroden to the base of Mount Skullbruder. I can reach its peak in minutes, but some journeys must be made the hard way. I summon Morden Kanan's faithful hound to guard my back as I climb. Wind, rain, and snow do all they can to impede my progress, but I will not relent. This is my defining moment. I climb for days until seeing an amber haze through gauze-like fibers of memories. My head breaches the cloud bank, and I am in the light. I am Bilbo Baggins, filling his lungs with fresh air as he breaches the canopy of Mirkwood. I have fallen before the fountain of Lamneth. I hear the horses thundering down in the valley below. The peak of Mount Skullbruder really is covered in snow and gold. I cannot describe what it is to see all the things that have only existed in my imagination. I made this place. It is as real as anything. And then it happens. Far below me, I hear Bodigan calling out, Arnold! I hear Garland Sandura begging for me to come back, and then shouting for help. I hear Eldre Mormyar say something so strange. Come on, you piece of shit! Make that saving throw! We need you, bitch! I consider for a moment returning to my company, but there is peace in this place, and even more peace in the act that follows. I fill my lungs to the point of almost hurting, and as I exhale, I give myself to the great god Melanor. 
Right before everything goes black, I hear them singing songs in my honor down in Valmorn. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and Chad Crouch, a.k.a. Poddington Bear, released under a Creative Commons license. Not About Lumberjacks is also released under a Creative Commons license. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music. Next month, in honor of Halloween, a podcaster discovers some strange audio while editing his show. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp.